You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to A Slice of Cheese, the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheese is a delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. This week, on A Slice of Cheese, we're looking at the cheese scene in the United States of America. We talk to Jason Hines of Neil's Yard Dairy, Emilio Minucci of De Bruno Brothers, Kate Arding of Talbot and Arding, and Matteo Keeler of Jasper Hill Farm. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. Very happy to have Jason Hines with me. Jason is the sales director of Neil's Yard Dairy. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Jenny. And Neil's Yard Dairy have got, had a long, sort of interesting relationship with America because they started exporting cheese to the States in 1990. And so, Jason, you have done, I think you spent a lot of time travelling to America. I, ha- I have. Um, uh, in fact, it was always a, a keen ambition of mine to export the greatest British cheese to destinations around the world. Um, uh, and to my good fortune, when I started at Neil's Yard Dairy in early 92, uh, we had already been shipping to the States as our first export market just a year and a half or two earlier. And what was the reception like? Were they interested in British cheese or was it sort of uphill struggle to, to persuade um, them? It was an interesting combination of a lot of sort of curiosity and interest in the cheeses that, that we were exporting as they were handmade fairly expensive compared to most of the cheese that was available in the US at that time, but also with lots of taste. And actually, uh, you know, people were curious about um, these cheeses with loads of taste. Mm. And, and, and it was that that made it actually a very dynamic place to be at that time, because as well as there not being many, you know, handmade local cheeses that were produced in the States at that time, there was also very little being imported into the states from from you know from farm made production so you know it was it was a combination of uh interest and curiosity that was how the cheese was received um and there were very there were also there was an absence also at that time of of specialist food shops um right. where you know really great 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 cheese was available so mm-hmm. um it was a really fa- fascinating time to be involved you know, on the ground at that time as we were. Pretty pioneering, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing how things can change. And I suppose, I mean, the reason I was asking you about yeah, selling British cheese to America, but I was interested in, that in what, I get the impression that American cheesemakers again, then looked at Europe. Is that right? And then they were inspired by what, what was happening in Europe to then sort of think, well, we can do this here. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, you know, in those early years, in the, in the early 90s, um, because, because Neil's Yard Dairy was a place where there was a sort of collection of all of these farm-made cheeses. Um, it definitely, we were, we were a business that caught the attention of, of a number of specialist, you know, of a number of specialist US cheesemakers who saw the dairy as uh, a place where perhaps um, they could go and learn a bit more about our world, our industry, meet some of our cheesemakers um, and 
you know Randolph, who was you know the founder of the bit of the business and was was also traveling to the states with me um, with with a fair degree of frequency. Um, was very very receptive to receiving some of these cheesemakers, uh, many of whom came and worked with us, or went off then to go and work with other cheesemakers that that we were that we worked with. Um, and so there was this real exchange of information and of partnership, albeit sort of a partnership of intellectual property rather than a transactional relationship. Yes. And so uh, that was it. Was a fascinating time to be you know, to be involved in this sort of nascent, you know, US farmhouse cheese industry. I think the language also, the fact that we spoke the same language, you know, saw some of the cheesemakers drawn rather towards us than they would maybe more naturally have been drawn to, say, France. Mm, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? A shared language, you know, a shared language. Um, yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, this, this um, that collaborative, uh, so behind the scenes, I was thinking about cheese knowledge and how it gets passed on. Because, you know, obviously Britain was also, you know, a few years into its own, in a way, you know, renaissance, whatever you want to call it, of, of artisan yeah. cheese making. So slightly ahead of the, the game of the States by the sound of it. And then, and then this very fruitful um, collaboration. So, who are the some of the who are some of the cheesemakers who came and worked with with you guys, or came and worked with with cheesemakers that you knew then? Well, there was a woman who made amazing goat's cheese in Kentucky. I think was Judy Shad. I'm pretty sure she was in Kentucky. She was definitely one of the pioneers of the American. They call it farmstead over there. Um, farmstead mm. cheese and cheese industry. Cindy Major was another woman who. Uh, made really amazing sort of Pyrenean-style sheep's milk cheese in Vermont. She wanted to learn a bit more about maturing, and she came and worked with us for several months in our cellar and in the shop under Covent Garden, under the Covent Garden shop. So they were some of the some of the earlier ones. There was a, another chap called John Loomis who uh, made a sort of Cheshire-style cheese, uh, or cheese inspired by Cheshire. He he was in in Michigan, not far from Ann Arbor. So there was there was a there was a there was a few um, you know often um, making cheeses that were inspired by you know European types whether that was John Loomis doing a Cheshire or Cindy making a Pyrenean style or Judy making um, you know a, 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 a soft ripened mold ripened goat's cheeses was mainly what she made um, mm-hmm. but you know just making it up as they went along inspired by. Um, whatever it, whatever types of cheese they were inspired to make, and I think, but what they all have in common is uh, that they were in an environment where there was the freedom to express themselves however they wanted. Because, um, and in a way, I think that's one of the that's one of the, the you know the similarities between the, the environment that you described that we had in England, you know, where the, the farmhouse cheese industry was really seeing this renaissance, and it was at the early stage of that. Or if you trace it back even to what was happening, uh, you know, in gastronomy, say in England and specifically in London at that same time, you know, there was this sense here as there was then uh, there that here was an opportunity. Here was a blank slate, um, Mm. you know, a blank canvas, I should say, you know, where these artists, where these, you know, food producers were unhindered by tradition, as they might have been, say, in a more established country like France or Italy. Uh, and actually able to paint on this canvas whatever they chose. And, of course, they were probably going to make mistakes along the way, um, but actually, you know, they were free to to, to, to to wander on this journey of their own making. And I think that, you know, as you quite rightly said, we were, we, we were, we were probably only a few years ahead of, of this 
uh, you know, of this of this industry that was just starting to pop up in the States. And I think that probably as well as the language was another reason maybe why, you know, we were speaking a, a similar type of language in terms because we are at similar stages of development in our respective industries. I think it is so interesting, isn't it? And I've lived in Italy and, you know, and the strength of the Italian food tradition, you know, which is deep. And, and mm. Britain, I've always been struck by that sort of open-mindedness in the way of, of the British food scene, you know, which is, you know, which was, you know, when I was a kid, it, people were, and my father worked at a European Institute in Florence, mm. you know, and the French and Germans were very scornful of, of mm. English food and very dismissive yeah. of it. And of course, I've been writing and seeing this sort of rise, you know, we have wonderful food producers, we have wonderful chefs. And I've always been struck, exactly your point, that there was, um, for people who came interested in food in Britain, it was very open-minded. I'm guessing it's the same thing in the States because you're not kicking against a tradition. You're not set, you're not bound by lots of rules, actually, saying you can only make this cheese in this place in this way. It's sort of up to you to explore that. So is that something that you see when you taste American cheeses? Do you sort of see that freedom in a way? Definitely. No, I I, I think that, um, you know, if I take a, a... you know, a more modern, not more modern, but, a, 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 you know, a cheesemaker that's come into the scene more recently. So in the last 20 years, someone like the sellers of Jasper Hill, you know, that the, they are able to, you know, to go uh, to be inspired by making a cheese that's, uh, you know, along the lines of, say, a Vacheramondor, for example. But they they are not bound by uh, how it's supposed to be made by how the AOC says that they must make it. They are free to, to really take whatever twists and turns on the road that they fancy to evolve the cheese in the way that they want to. Um, and, and I think that that sort of freedom of expression and the ability to, to take something and, uh, you know, mould it to how you how you would like to fashion it is something that uh, is very liberating and, and definitely there's a lot of evidence of that in the States. And I do think that they, they were the sellers to, to take that recipe and do what they're doing to it in, say, France, they, they, they would, um, you know, they had a much more difficulty in doing so. And such an interesting experience for you, you know, Jason, because you've had, you know, you've seen it grow and evolve. So what, what do you see when you look at America now, the American cheese scene? Because, you know, we know very little about American cheese in Britain. I'd, you know, I would be hard. I think I've just eaten in in here, in London. I've eaten very few examples of American cheese. Yeah, I'm, I mean, most, most people, when they think of, uh, you know, American gastronomy and American cheese in particular, even now, uh, although I think it's one of the most, one of the most dynamic um, cheese scenes on the globe, on the planet. It, it, mm. It's it's um, most people's perception of it is that the, the cheese and the food is bland uh, and mostly industrially produced, and that could be the case. But I certainly think that in terms of the number of new cheesemakers who are arriving on the scene and the depth and range of cheese that they produce, uh, it's fast becoming one of the most interesting and dynamic place what countries in the world where cheese where farmhouse cheese is being made. Um, so, uh, and I think also uh, a combination of this, you know, not being hampered by tradition, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 I've, I've always admired the lack of fear in Americans when they do business. I like the way they do <laughs> business. Um, and I also like the way they invest in, in, in business. <laughs> you know, that when they get behind something, they really go for mm, it. Right. Um, and if you put all these things together, you know, it, it it doesn't mean that every every business is going to succeed because fundamentally the cheese needs to be good 
first yeah. and foremost. And, and, and if you invest in something and you're not focused on the quality of the cheese, then, then inevitably, you know, uh, it, 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 it shouldn't be a wonder if it doesn't succeed. But, you know, it, it also um, should be noted that it was an American cheese that won the best cheese in the world at the World Cheese Awards yeah. um, just before the pandemic. And I was there as a judge uh, on the panel in Bergamo in October oh. 2019. Yeah. And uh, that, you know, that was an international panel of judges. It was the Rogue River uh, blue, which is an amazing cheese, and you know, uh, the first cheese to be first American sort of handmade cheese to be imported in into Europe and into the UK, you know, for, for commercial purposes to be to be resold, right. um, and and it's an incredible cheese, and you know, and it deserved its place as the winner of the best cheese of I don't know four thousand or so that were uh, that were that were on show that day. So, you know, that, that in itself was quite a moment then, marker. isn't it? It really yeah, that was. Is a marker. Yeah. Yes. And was there a was there a sort of surprise, you know, that an American cheese had won this this award? Uh there was a combination because it was uh, it, it was a, it was a tie break with a parmesan and we were in <laughs> Bergamo in Italy. Yeah. Um there was uh, it was a split decision uh and there was a, a first there was a hush in the auditorium when it was announced that it was the American cheese that had won this split decision. And then, you know, a, a growing sense of outrage. But as judges, we knew that the right cheese had won. And so, you know, I think it was a, it was a big moment in, you know, in the journey uh, of American cheese that, that actually, it, you know, here, here, was, here was a cheese that amongst 4,000 had come from all, all corners of the globe, that, that it was an American cheese that took the prize. That must be pretty inspiring for American cheesemakers. So do you see there is people are becoming that's a sort of scene that is continuing to grow then, even despite the pandemic and its effects, is it? I don't know really where we are in, in the development of, of this industry other than still very, very early on. I think that there's so many American consumers out there that don't know that America produces amazing cheese. And it's such a big country. You know, I think that the scope to to you know, for, you know, a lot more cheesemakers to come into the, um, you know, to come to, to come into the industry. You know, I, I, as I say, I think we're, we're at the very early, the very early stages. And, and, and all the while, their willingness to invest bravery, that uh, a lack of fear, I should say, um, and that the learning curve that, that um, you know, the understanding that a lot of these cheesemakers that are coming into the industry are on um, is only going to see the quality get better and better over time. So I'm, I'm you know, uh, I think they're already on a trajectory where um, the, the country is producing some of the world's better cheeses. But uh, who's to say in a generation from now that it won't be France, it could be America, that's seen as the, as the home of, of the best farmhouse cheese in the world. That is quite fascinating thank you jason for sharing your insights so fascinating i love the story about the judging it was thank you for coming on the show it's a pleasure thank you very much for having me i'm a huge fan of peter's yard's crackers and they go beautifully with cheese all peter's yard's crackers are made in small batches using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavor and crunch visit petersyard.com forward slash shop Enter the code slice of cheese at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, 
and specialist food retailers. Very happy to have with me today Kate Arding, co-owner of Talbot and Arding, a cheese and provisions store in Hudson Valley. Hello, Kate. Good morning. Loud and clear all the way. Technology is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Now, now, Kate, I was really interested. We're doing this whole episode looking at the American cheese scene, about which I know nothing, I would say, really, to be honest. I'm so fascinated with the sort of the origins of cheese making in America. Was it something that was... Tell me the story of, if you can, <laughs> the history of cheese making in America. <laughs> well, it's, I think, really fascinating. The The origins really started in the, the 17th century um, with the pilgrims um, and really can be directly traced back to East Anglia. At the time, they were there were several cheesemakers there who were producing, you know, large, hard-pressed sort of large format cheeses um, to sell in London. And then in uh, 1623, um, when the pilgrims arrived, they first of all brought sort of dairy cows um, to the Plymouth colony. Um, and they started to sort of make butter and cheese in a, in a small way then. Um, and then a few years later in 16. 29, the East, Anglia, East Anglian Puritans arrived with wheels of aged cheese and um, formed this sort of colony in Massachusetts. And it really started there. So that was the very beginning of it um, mm. in, in New England and, and the Northeast. There's a whole sort of farmer's tradition of, you know, preserving milk. You know, milk's perishable and precious. So what do you do with it? And make it into cheese is a is a great a great way to preserve it, isn't it? It is, and and I I dread to think what condition they were like by the time they arrived in America. <laughs> yes. um, but but yes, they took um, those cheese making skills and and then you know applied them here. So. So the origins were really in the northeast, which which is why so many of the sort of English style cheeses are still in existence here. Ah, that's interesting. So tell me, so tell me about that. So with different groups of settlers in different parts of the states, there must be massive regional differences. I'm guessing then there are, and and I mean that that's one of the things about the U.S. Obviously, is it, it's a tremendous sort of melting pot, and so really the patterns of immigration sort of came you know, obviously on the East Coast initially, but then also earlier, of course, with the conquest by the Spanish of, of Central and, and South America, you started to get sort of Hispanic style cheeses um, being made on the West Coast, on the Pacific mm. Coast. And a little bit later in the sort of 19th century, when you saw this tremendous influx of, of European immigrants, you know, from Germany, sort of Norway and so on other other countries they sort of landed in the on the east coast and started to push sort of further west and they brought the dairying traditions you know with them so for example in in Wisconsin which has a lot of German Swiss and Italian and Norwegian sort of ancestry as it were they they would bring those cheese recipes with them and these sort of still in are in existence today. For example, you know, what Americans call Swiss, you know, which we would call Emmentaler, really. Mm -hmm. And then further west, you know, you get dry Monterey Jack, which really has its roots, for example, in an Italian tome. So oh. it, it's really interesting, I think, and, and directly mirrors those patterns of immigration. And many of these regions, particularly in the Midwest, as as the pioneers sort of pushed westwards, dairying was at the forefront of that, because as you've just mentioned, it's sort of one of the original fast foods. Um, and then the dairy farms were, a lot of them replaced by wheat. 
um, which of course then really partially destroyed the the soil yeah. and then was subsequently replaced again with dairy. So it, it's had a very sort of checkered and, and sort of slightly complicated history but the but the origins of those cheese recipes are still very much there so now sort of coming forward and thinking of of the american cheese scene when did you go to america kate and what what took you there well i i worked at neil's yard dairy in the 90s and it was actually really interesting because we had a visit um from sue conley and peggy smith from california and they came to see Neil's Yard and what they were doing because they were in the process of starting their business, Cowgirl Creamery, uh, which is in California. And this was very early days. It was actually before mm-hmm. they opened. Peggy Smith at the time was working for Chez Panisse oh. um, in Berkeley. And I, I used to run the wholesale um, department at Neil's Yard. So I'd heard of Chez Panisse. And I went up and introduced myself to them and, and <laughs> they were just, we just really clicked. And they told me about this vision that they had for the business, which was really starting an artisan cheese business in California. To cut a long story short, I went out to visit them and I could see immediately, the, I mean, number one, it was a most stunningly beautiful area just north of um, San Francisco. And the Point Reyes. Uh, Point Reyes. The yes. which I, it's so beautiful there. My goodness, yes. Oh, it was lovely. Absolutely lovely. And and so I went out there and I kind of fell in love with the area. But also I could see this enormous potential there because there was this wonderful sort of history of dairying around mm. there. But the cheeses really weren't in existence. The artisan cheeses, they were just beginning. Right. and it, And they couldn't even see the potential fully themselves. Well, Sue and Peg could. Really pioneering, actually. It's interesting, isn't it? You can have Individuals can make such a massive difference. It's fascinating, you know, the influence that some people in the food scene can have, you know, with a vision. It's, Abs- it's quite yeah, remarkable. Abs- mm. Absolutely. And, and not only did they have the drive and the, and the bravery to do it, because it was quite brave at that time, um, but also the vision to understand that it takes, you know, a rising tide to float all the boats. And what I mean by that is is simultaneously they were starting, for example, the Point Race Farmers Market, the San Francisco Farmers Market was, ah, was just yeah. in existence. In addition to the creation of the product, they were also creating awareness of the product. And where uh, we, people could buy it, which is same, making a market, you know, literally a market, isn't it? I mean, farmers markets get a lot of, um, they're often dismissed as sort of, elite and expensive but the people when I talk to food producers around the country they would often they come up they just say to me they, it was so useful because they you know it's income it's it's cash it's you know it's straight you know unfiltered you you make the profit yourself and you, and you meet your customers which people often say to me that's what's so great I met my customers I know what they they like say for example a new cheese you know really useful to have that feedback yeah I completely agree and and the other factor that comes into play is a lot of chefs go to farmers markets and especially with cheeses, but also other foods, I think, you know, chefs are often really into trying new things mm. and then they put them on the restaurant menu. And um, that's yet another way that they can get exposure. You know, cheesemakers can get exposure for their products. And, and all of that came into play with Calgo Creamery. So so I was really fortunate to, to be in there, you know, on the on the ground floor. I moved out there in 1997 to help them start the business. And, and really, it was an incredible journey. Wonderful. And, what an yeah. experience. And you now you're on the East Coast. So you've gone from West to East. What, what do you 
see in the American art? You know, is there there is an artisan American cheese scene then? Yes, there is, and and the the origins of this sort of renaissance, for want of a better word, started in early 80s and, and into the 90s. And, and interestingly, a lot of it started with women cheesemakers and with goats, and uh-huh. um, which isn't necessarily a coincidence because I think goats are a lot easier to, to handle. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time... Well, it's I mean, just smaller were... and more affordable, aren't they? In fact, that's, that's come up. Someone was talking about that. If people are starting, you know, it's just a much more accessible way in to start with goats milk than with cows. A lot of these um, cheesemakers um, who are known affectionately in, in the cheese industry in the States as, as the women of the goat women of cheese... Um, and a lot of them started out with just owning a few goats. There's a, an incredibly sort of good organisation here called 4-H, which in the UK would be sort of young farmers, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's aimed at, you know, children and, and teenagers. And often these women sort of started out by buying a couple of goats for their for their children. And it just went from there. And so there were a handful of pioneers, particularly who started making cheese because they had an excess of milk. Um, Laura Chanel, for example, Anne Topham, Barbara Bacchus, Alison Hooper, um, Mary Keane, Judy Shad. There was probably about 10 or a dozen of them. And, you know, at the time it was incredibly difficult because they had no template really to learn cheese making. You know, travel wasn't really as accessible then mm. and especially you know as you know if you're on a farm it, yeah, it's, it's relentless isn't it? to, you can't it's, leave it yes no it's exactly. where your animals are there needing to be fed and watered every day and milked yeah exactly so there was a tremendous sort of community built up between these um cheesemakers even though geographically they were pretty far flung there was a book about goat cheese making by jean-claude lejoin which was in French, so they had to sort of translate it as best they could. But they, you know, they started producing, in some cases, really amazing quality cheeses. And the rest is sort of history, really, because they, they continue to do this. You know, many of them have now retired. Um, so, they created, no- so they created a foundation where they showed this could be done. And they found a market then. People were interested in what they were producing then. Were restaurants interested? They were. And, and again, farmers' markets, you know, in their infancy were another really great avenue for that. And, and there was a very seminal sort of moment in, in 1983 with the foundation of, of the American Cheese Society, mm-hmm. uh, which for the first time um, was an organisation that uh, really sought to advance and help small-scale cheesemakers. Mm-hmm. And it was started by a um, dairy scientist called Frank Kosikowski and it's really helped the industry enormously. By sharing knowledge and information? By sharing knowledge and having a, a, an annual conference and, and so forth. And, you know, the, the numbers of cheesemakers now, I would say there's probably about 800 to, to 1,000 sort of small-scale cheesemakers, you know, in the U.S., whereas going back to the late 70s and, and early 80s, there were probably only 50 so Gosh, it's right. it's it's quite a, a surge and, and some of those fifty, it has to be said, had their origins or their, their roots with some of those nineteenth century cheesemakers that I referenced earlier. Yeah. So it's been quite a quite a journey. 
And so you obviously, you're selling cheese yourself. Do you, is there lots to choose from? You choose from great American cheeses. Do you sort of now feel like, oh, you know, I can have a wonderful blue. Is there a great range to choose from and great quality to choose from? The, the quality has come up enormously. I mean, it's um, quality of the American artisan and farmhouse cheeses is, is rivals anything in Europe. And it wasn't always the case. It, it's taken some time. But, you know, with classic American gusto, you know, once they get an idea, they just pick up the ball and run with it. <laughs> um, and I think that in itself has been very interesting, you know, because there's the American Cheese Society, which I was just talking about, they have yeah. an annual competition, which I've been fortunate enough to judge at, you know, for, for a number of years. And yeah. and seeing the, the quality and also the consistency of cheese improve over those times, you know, those years has been yes. remarkable. And it sounds very several... exciting, really. Yes, it, it is exciting. And also what I've seen is the fact that the imported cheeses, i.e. imported from from Europe, has really diminished in the face of, of the rise of the American produced cheeses. Um, and that's partly, you know, largely because of quality. Um, also other factors such as freight charges and exchange tariffs. rates and so forth. Mm. And tariffs, yep. yes. Um, so it's, it's, we're very, very fortunate to be able to choose from a tremendous variety of really excellent cheese domestically produced. And presumably there's no reason why it couldn't, even though that sounds, you know, it's obviously grown a lot, but presumably it could just keep growing because America's so big. And if there's an interest, then there must be a massive market, potential market for local cheesemakers. There is, there is. And, and, and also the knowledge base has has snowballed you know it's grown enormously so the resources available now to cheesemakers night and day from from 30 years ago uh there are really excellent cheese making courses available dairy science programs um and sort of university extension programs which help um, on both the practical and and also financial levels you know some states it does vary quite wildly by by state, but the main cheese making and, and dairy states are sort of Vermont, Wisconsin, California, New York, Pennsylvania. Whereas cheese makers, for example, in say Arizona, have a harder time of it. <laughs> so, right. Or Florida. So that just know, depends so, on the state. That state laws, then, is it in terms of sort of help or yes. institutional help? Right. Yes, exactly. That's not to say there aren't some really great cheese makers in in some of the other states. Yeah. Um, but there's just less support for them, you know, on a state level. The lack of support comes up a lot, actually, in, when people are talking about the British cheese scene. So Mary Quick was talking about, you know, that we need more help, you know, like and literally sort of scientific guidance and information and knowledge. We, we, we did a programme about women in cheese. And just talking about the female, they were female dairy scientists who travelled around and gave, you know, really practical advice on cheese making. And that unfortunately has has gone largely in Britain. And she was saying, we well, you know, we need it. We need, it's so important. This needs to be done. Invest, you, need, you need to invest, basically, because it, cheese making is complex. And, you know, there is a lot of science to understand and learn. Yes, I, I, I listened to that episode and enjoyed it enormously, actually. And, um, yeah, she, Mary's right. She's absolutely right. I mean, even though she's obviously far more in touch with UK cheese making scene than me at this point. But I think also there's another factor to certainly here where you have the the practitioners you know i.e the cheesemakers and then you also have the dairy scientists 
Right. And I think um, it's where it becomes crucial is that crossover of information between the two, because I think the dairy scientists can have you know, tremendous experience and knowledge, which is largely sort of lab or, or university based, but they don't get out into the field as much as they could. And conversely, you have a, a skilled cheesemaker uh, working away, you know, in their, in their cheese make room who doesn't always understand the science behind the process. And I think mm. the cross-pollination of the two is, is something that, that should happen a lot more. Um, it's, it's difficult to implement. Um, and here the closest one gets is these university cooperative extensions, which are, you know, why I think they're so valuable. But as with everything, you know, resources are cut and so forth. But it's, yeah. it's uh, yes, that cross-pollination of information is is hugely important, I think. The, the other thing I was going to mention, you know, this comes back um, to the American Cheese Society, is that they, they do um, provide tremendous resources for cheesemakers. They've, for example, produced a, a, a fairly hefty tome of, of best practices for cheesemakers a few years ago, which I know was was very helpful but it is a bit of a struggle but you know simultaneously to that they have this is more for cheesemongers really than cheesemakers but they started this uh, American Cheese Society um, certified cheese professional yes. exam which which may you may have heard of I have um, yeah which has really helped the, which I think sort of inspired the Academy of Cheese in in Britain in the, they looked at it, that and I think Mary looked at that and thought wow Mary, great yeah, idea Mary, yeah exactly Mary was very keen on on uh, doing that and, and worked enormously hard to, to get that off the ground and I, I remember having some early conversations with her about that because I was very involved with with the cheese society here at that point and and uh, trying to work out how we could do it <laughs> so she's yeah. she's she's a force a, a wonderful she is a force, force. Yes. yeah well, that goes back to what I was saying about individuals can have enormous influence. So, yes. Um, so it must be very exciting, Kate. So you've, you know, your own journey, you know, travelling to America and and then seeing this, sort of following this cheese scene, you, you must be very, it must be very rewarding in a way for you. You know, you've, you've witnessed, you've taken part, you've, yeah, you've been part of it, you're there and you're still, you know, and now you're telling us about it. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's been a really great journey and hopefully it's not over yet. <laughs> so, I hope not. Um, but it, it's been really, as you say, really rewarding. Well, Kate, thank you so much. It was really fascinating to hear that. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. Very excited to have with me today on A Slice of Cheese, Emilio Minucci, who has the splendid title of Vice President, but also Vice President of Culinary Pioneering of Di Bruno Brothers, which is a, a real Philadelphia food institution. Hello, Emilio. Hello, Jenny. How are you? I am good. I, so thank you so much for taking the time because I know you have a hectic schedule. So, um, But in fact, I wondered, the first thing I wanted to ask you is tell me about it. What De Bruno Brothers, what do you what do? You do? So really, uh, De Bruno Brothers were my grandparents. They came over from Italy around the turn of the century and, uh, you know, started work when they emigrated into the Italian, into Philadelphia. They emigrated into a section that was known as the uh, Italian market area at that time. And so they went to work for um, uh, a, 
a couple of people and, and learned about retail, saved up enough money and opened up their own retail store. And so uh, in doing so, they their goal was really to um, provide goods to the neighborhood that, you know, like any um, immigrant neighborhood, you, you know, the, the folks who had moved there had, uh, were, were always looking for a product from home. And so sure. my, my grandparents just started um, to um, produce a lot of stuff that they used to make in Italy, you know, that their families used to make. And, and so they, they created this business, this retail business for the neighborhood. And uh, over time, they, um, you know, like, they opened the first store in 1939. And so uh, Danny and Joe with their sister uh, Rita and cousin Dominic and, 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 uh, and Angie and Edith, they, they um, had this retail store. And eventually by the mid 60s, they felt confident enough to, you know, 20 some odd years later, 22, 25 years later, uh, to finally go back to visit family in Italy. And um, when they first went back to Italy is when they realized that they needed to evolve their business um, and go from just being this neighborhood, I don't want to use the term bodega, but this little grocery store kind of. Mm -hmm. Um, into something more. Um, Danny was very, very ambitious. They came over, Danny and Joe, with nothing more than a third grade education. And, and Danny was very entrepreneurial. And um, so from our perspective, you know, we always saw our grandparents and aunts and uncles as, you know, very, um, they're very welcoming and open and uh, a joy to be around. And they treated the store like their own kitchen, like, come mm -hmm. on in, have a taste, uh, uh, you know, you should try yeah. this kind of thing. And so as we're growing up as kids in the 70s and 80s, you know, my question was, well, how did you know to start selling cheese? And, and my grandfather said, well, when I took my vacation, went back to Italy and saw our family, that's when we decided, that was in the 60s that we were going to, um, he had a buddy that moved to Switzerland that started making Emmentaler cheese. And that was the first cheese that he imported himself and brought over oh. because nobody has ever seen a 200 pound wheel of cheese in the United States <laughs> like that. Right. Brilliant. So, um, yes. you know, he was, he had very much this ability to create wow factors and want yeah. to shock people in a way that, you know, they were like, wow, what's that? Is that a real cheese? And that's what he yeah. did, you know? So, um, you know, from that, he went on to selling um, like barrel feta from Greece. So like he, he'd import these big wooden barrels of brined feta and would, you know, sell that alongside like, you know, like fusties, large things of olive oil, you know, and yeah. he, in his own way, him and his brother were teaching people what food was like, you know, how they did it back home when they, when, when they lived in Europe and in Italy. Yes. No. We talked to Philip Contini of Avon and Crollo, who in Edinburgh, Italian Delhi, and they had this massive role in yeah. introducing that, you know, it's run by generations of the family. And they introduced, you know, that the sort of population of Edinburgh to all these ingredients because it's that interesting thing that a shop that serves an expatriate community then widens out, you know, beyond that community that knows mm -hmm. what these foods are to people who don't know who are then interested, isn't it? Which is, I'm guessing, is partly your story as well. Yeah, and so that's the evolution of the Bruner Brothers. It's funny because as a, as a kid growing up and I lived there in the Italian market, I went to school at the other end of the market, I would constantly walk by my grandparents' store and see them in the morning, have a quick little, you know, um, 
piece of toast and some cheese and then go to school and then come back and have lunch there and then go back to school and come back and hang out, you know? Mm. And, and as a kid in that retail store, I always thought it was fun to be around because, you know, when I looked at my grandfather and my aunts and my uncles and they were taking care of customers coming in who really had no idea what, what the foods were and what some of these cheeses were mm. that, um, you know, it was fun the way they let people taste and they would talk to them about it and they would make people happy. And I can remember being as young as like six years old and we have bulk beans and olives and stuff and I would mix them up like fooling around and then, you know, for punishment, I had to separate them. <laughs> you know, they make me sit there and like pick out all the olives that you mix together, separate, yep. pick out all the beans that you, the dried beans, you know, but, but the other part of that was I'd watch my grandfather hand over this bag of really great product stuff that like we went home and ate every day salami and cheese and you know parmigiano and and you know provolone and 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 people were laughing and joking and having a good time and they'd hand them money and i thought to myself like i'm six years old and i thought to myself i i could do that i could make people laugh hand them a bag and collect money for it like that'll be my job right <laughs> not knowing what really went into the business right <laughs> well it's interesting isn't it? that you know and i think selling a genuine enthusiasm for food which you know obviously sounds so much part of your family is is a brilliant way and, and good food is such a great converter you know tasting it is that thing you know Niels Yardere in London hand out tastings of their cheeses because lots of people if you've never tried a, a farmhouse cheddar it's very different from a supermarket cheddar but why would you know unless you tasted it you know it's quite a, it's a pretty basic wonderful thing isn't it yeah and, and and I'll tell you it was so you know if you fast forward to today like it's kind of what we do it's one of the tools in our toolbox and when I think back to my grandfather it's something that he always did right and he saw it and knew it and said listen these people, well, I, I'll just tell you, when we took over the business in 1990, he said to us, you know, like, all you have to do is maybe just really take care of the customers that come through the door. They don't understand or know what all this product is. They get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And your job is to welcome them into, like, your house and then make them feel comfortable. And the easiest way to make somebody feel comfortable is to, is to help them let their guard down, feed them a piece of cheese, give them a slice of prosciutto, you know, and right away you'll see people, you know, turn happy and they'll be ready to listen. And then you can talk to them about, you know, what it is that you want to sell them and, and because they don't know it. And in a sense, what he was telling us is that, you know, it, it's our job to teach people and educate them about, um, our culture, this really great culture around food and, um, and, and to help them um, realize that, you know, they could do better for the industry by helping these smaller producers. And Right. And in the sort of 30 years since you and your, your cousin, your brother took over, you must have, have you seen shifts in sort of, I don't know, in taste, I suppose I'm thinking, you know, because you know, I've seen that I've been writing actually funnel for the same amount of time I've been food writing in Britain and seen a massive shift in changing taste. You know, I've seen lots of things that were very obscure now become terribly mainstream. And have you seen those sort of changes take place? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember... When we took over the business, I'll tell you. So we we took it over in in 1990, and um, we were still feeling a lot of the uh, the generation that had become francophiles, who in the 70s were mm. traveling to France a lot and wanting, you know, their brie 
their triple cream cheeses like San Andre and you know and 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 also some of the stronger cheeses like because in Philadelphia there's there was a huge German population so like oh. Wash Rhine strong cheeses like Limburger and something made locally called Liederkranz was something right it was a big yep. smelly cheese that was you know bold and flavorful and so and so when we took it over we still had people with those palates but you know, folks that would come in and want really extra sharp provolone and drier, the better. And, and what we had to do, what, what had happened was, uh, and I'll tell you, and it's probably a, a huge influence from Neil Girardari when when um, Deborah Dickerson, who was working there, came to me one day, it was the midnight, like probably 98, 97, 98, and, and offered me Colston Bassett Stilton for the first oh. time. <laughs> and we were selling just, you know, at the time, what we could get, a random run-of-the-mill kind of Stilton. Mm -hmm. And and I'll never forget it. When she brought it to me and made me taste it in the store, I thought to myself, wow, this is such an incredible cheese. Mm. And then she started talking to me about how it's made and telling me the story of Billy, the cheesemaker. And I thought to myself, I, I could sell this cheese and get people to switch from this you know, uh, supermarket blue cheese that I was selling to this really great one, right? Yeah. And and uh, that's how we started with it. But but then I, when she told me the price, I thought, wow, I got to double my price. <laughs> yep. Right, because we were selling the the regular Stilton for twelve dollars a pound, Colston yeah. Bassett. We had to sell for twenty or twenty two dollars wow. a pound. That's quite a American. jump. Yeah. It it was because it was costing me like ten eleven dollars, you know, with shipping, you know, freight yes. from the UK and. And so, you know, Deborah, and so you could sell this. You, all we need to do is educate your client base. And, and that's what we started to do. And it started with that one cheese, that Colson Bassett Stone, and then Montgomery's Cheddar. And from there, uh, you know, I'm proud to say we sell so much Neil Girard cheeses here that we've converted a lot of people to uh, this product. But it, but it helped us at that time. And we're talking late 90s, you know, make people understand about good quality cheeses and the families that produce cheese and charcuterie in this way, right? Yeah. And so that European style, that all those European traditionals became, you know, even more popular than they were. And we were able to sell more things like Telegio and Robiolas and, you know, real Greek fed and not a domestic one. And, and you know, it, it just made a difference for us. And then in the thousands, in the 2000s, what was happening was the American cheese industry started to really blossom because they were getting help from European cheesemakers who were teaching them about technique. So this beautiful collaboration from, you know, folks, I mean, Jason Hines, Neil Girardari, Randolph Hodgson, like, went, you know, being out in front, being at the mm. forefront of this, movement really helped the rest of the industry all through, you know, helped all the folks here in the United States, but start to focus on a lot of these other really great cheesemakers around Europe. And so those folks started coming to conference at the American Cheese Society. And you saw this really great influence of, of really good technique and American cheese started to blossom. Right. Then the shift went back to Europe where the European cheesemakers started looking at what the American cheesemakers were doing and said, well, they're taking traditional here in the United States, traditional uh, 
processes and technique and making their own new unique style of cheese. Why do we have to make AOP, DOP, AOC cheeses, you know, it, it, DO cheeses? It, it doesn't have to be. And so mm -hmm. now that European cheesemakers are doing this and making it their own. But the beauty in all of this is that there's so many really great high quality uh, cheeses and charcuterie items being produced around the world and every community has been able to help each other you know from Europe to the United States and Japan even now you know so yes. there's great I stuff mean, going on all over. But how exciting that that must be part of your your job I'm guessing is to sort of always be looking for new new interesting makers and new or new trends emerging in different countries that must be um, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Well, it absolutely is, and it is part of what we do. Um, but today, it, you know, there needs to be a sustainability aspect to it. You can't just be new, but there has to be a reason. You know, in some little way, our focus has shifted to really help to make the food chain better. Good. And so whatever is happening, whatever's going on, you know, you can talk about sustainability all you want, but there's a, there's a lot to it. You know, yep. it's in technique, it's in, you know, animal husbandry, it's in, you know, the, 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 the land, how we, you know, um, fortify the land and support it. And then it's the people and the makers that are there. So there's a, a lot to talk about, which is what we're focusing on now. The product can be new and different, unique, but it still needs to fit this criteria. And we want to fix the food system. Well, that is very laudable and, as you say, so important. Just going back to, to your sort of role, you know, and I was just wondering how many cheeses you, you sell at De Bruno Brothers. Can you <laughs> even give me a number? <laughs> we're very, very fortunate. So in our database of cheeses that we cycle through throughout the year, there are probably just over, I don't know, 1,200 or so cheeses. You know, like there, there would be... Just Conte alone, there's probably, I don't know, seven or eight Contes. Right. And we cycle cheeses in from all over the world and the United States. And we've been doing a good job with Belgian cheeses as of late, you know. Oh. Uh, all these Swiss cheesemakers that are spinning off and not just making Appenzeller anymore, but they're doing their unique cheeses all throughout the Swiss Alps. I mean, yeah. Alpine cheeses of all styles from Austria, from Switzerland, from, you know, uh, from everywhere, from Italy. I mean, there's so much out there. Yeah. And we have our core, but we, we cycle things in every month and then again seasonally. And have you found that your customers, have they got really used to you introducing them to things? You know, do they come in with an open-minded curiosity? I suppose that's what I was wondering, you know, or are they resistant? Yeah. They do, no, no. Uh, so we've been fortunate along the way. You know, if they're opening, you know, six stores now that we have, you know, we have six retail stores, we import, we manufacture, we distribute, we do a lot of things. So, I mean, our, our name allows people, like when people come to the Brunos, they're expecting to taste something new and unique and mm -hmm. get what they're most comfortable getting and and try something new. And so like, we always try to make sure that get what you're comfortable with, you know, come in and let's, let's get what you need now. Let's let you taste some really cool and different things. So we're always trying to introduce people and we find that they're very open to, to listen and learn and, and to taste. 
Wonderful. I mean, cheese is such a fascinating food, isn't it? You know, I'm, I'm a food writer, not a cheese writer, but it is, if I had to pick one food, it would be cheese because it is just so interesting, isn't it? I mean, just like, you know, the way you're describing it, the, you know, the variety, isn't it? You have got the, you know, the milks, the maker, the types of cheese, the styles, the country, you know, it goes on and on, doesn't it? So it always keeps you fascinated, I think. It's the greatest fast food in the world. I mean, there's no other part. You, all you need is to have it in your fridge. You have a knife and a fork. You can cut it down and start snacking on it with some fresh fruit and crusty bread and a salami. It's the easiest and best fast food in the world. Oh, well, it was really wonderful to talk to you. Thank you, Emilio. I really appreciate that. Jenny, it's, it's been my pleasure. And if there's ever anything I could do for you, please feel free. I, sh- I must come to Philadelphia. It's now on my list. Thank you, Emilio. Well, you, you cannot come to Philadelphia without letting me know. I will definitely be in touch. Thank you. Take care then. Bye, Emilio. Thank you. Take care. Ciao. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. Really thrilled today to have with me on a slice of cheese, Matteo Kila, co-founder of Jasper Hill Farm in Greensboro, Vermont. Good morning, Matteo. Good morning. So nice to be here with you. Thank you. Matteo, I was really interested in the story of how you got into cheesemaking. What what made you, it was you and your brother, I think, who, who sort of set up the business. What was the story there? Well, my brother Andy and I have a long history and an emotional connection to Greensboro. Our family's coming up on 100 summers on Caspian Lake. So it really is kind of the happy place of our collective family childhood, if you will. We we made an emotional, irrational decision in 1998 (laughs) at the height of the dot-com bubble to buy this piece of land. You know, it came on the market. We couldn't see a a chunk of land like this coming up uh, for a generation. And we basically both put our life savings into kind of securing an opportunity because we're essentially being priced out of paradise. And, you know, cheese came as um, a consequence, really, of uh, trying to establish, you know, what was really, like, important to us. And uh, we boiled it down to three Three things, meaningful work in a place that we love with people that we love. And Jasper Hill grew out of that quest, uh, really, and satisfies our, our need for meaningful work. That, yeah, that's a very inspiring vision. Obviously, a lot of hard work involved then. So so was it, were you buying an old a farm that was no longer so economically viable? Was that how you got the chance to buy the land? Exactly. It was a farm that was being subdivided for development. And we were able to afford, you know, four of seven parcels. And uh, we, we basically took the opportunity to like step back and really try and imagine how we could make a difference for our community. You know, one of the things that defines the pastoral ideal in Vermont is the footprint of the dairy farmer on the landscape. And it's that patchwork of farms and fields that really makes this place so beautiful. It's in the working landscape is something that is considered like a public good here. We thought that we needed to, and it's at risk uh, from mm, development. Yes, so, like the same, yeah, quite, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we, we thought that, you know, like value-added dairy, because dairy farming is is really marginal um, in, in the U.S. Uh, small farms really are falling away at an unbelievable rate. And I think probably in Britain you're seeing some of the same kind of 
pressures for scale. Absolutely, um, yeah. And and the consequences that come with scale. And you know, dairy farms are surpassing the carrying capacity of the landscape. So like the the scale of farms is becoming problematic. We're looking for uh, the economic mechanisms to make uh, dairy farming viable uh, mm-hmm. for us on a family farm scale. And what I did was take a step back and look at how how is it that we can really play both an economic uh, development role in a community that's been kind of on the fringe of the real economy for the last hundred years. Also, you know, preserve the things that are so special about Greensboro to us as, you know, as a family. Um, and cheese seemed like, you know, uh, something worth exploring. And I actually uh, spent about 18 months um, in Britain working at Neil's Yard Dairy and ah, uh, uh, making in, in cheese the for okay. their suppliers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So that's that must have been quite an experience then. Um, how, what did you find? What was useful about them? What did you like? I'm guessing you learned quite a lot. Were there some particular insights you took back to America with you? Well, I'd say that like our philosophical taproot um, as a business was really formed at Neil's Yard. And Neil's Yard, you know, is a, a business in London that selects and matures, retails uh, 65 varieties of uh British and Irish farmhouse cheeses. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the idea really is that if you want to preserve, um, you know, some of these uh, just incredible uh, cheeses with a re- rich and deep history and tradition, uh, you know, you really need to create the oppor- opportunity f- uh, for consumption, right? Mm. Um, these cheeses, you know, uh, Applebee's like Cheshire and Kirkham's Lancashire and you know, the Somerset Cheddars exist uh, because consumers, well, they're, first of all, they're delicious, yeah. uh, but they also offer a connection uh, for a consumer to something with a rich, uh, you know, tradition and history. We don't necessarily have that in the U.S., but we do have the opportunity to, like, really create a connection. And um, in some ways, you know, cheese is the perfect vehicle uh, for that we're able to, you know, connect consumers to something that is really authentic and real and, you know, and delicious. So, yeah, um, I'm totally with you. I mean, cheese is such a fascinating food. And and, and New Zealand area actually is, is the, the cheese shop that introduced me to that, this sort of wonderful world of, of farmhouse cheeses in Britain. And, and it was, yeah, just, just literally as someone, a bookseller working around the corner who then trotted up and to this little shop. It was the original tiny shop in the... In Neil's yard, and um, yeah, in Covent Garden, and buying some cheese, and thinking, "Wow, this is very different." You know, say such different cheese from what I'd had before. And uh, I mean, this is lots decades ago, but yeah, cheese does have that power, doesn't it? I think when you eat a piece of really good cheese, it it can be quite a revelation. I think it is, and I think you know, it's it's a primordial food. It's been with us since the dawn of civilization. I think it it like uh, rings and you know echoes in some kind of memory in the in the back in the back of our, you know, being in the sense that uh, cheese and um, civilization as we know it have essentially evolved together. And it's one of the only truly living foods that we consume. You know, every uh, mouthful morsel of cheese has 12 billion uh, living microbes. And in that sense, you know, it, it it is a truly living food. It's one of the things that I love so much about it is, you know, it's 
the complexity uh, is four simple ingredients, but there's a thousand iterations. And yeah. uh, those iterations are like fully uh, connected to, you know, uh, history on one hand and to like people and places. Specifically, you know, uh, raw milk cheese creates the opportunity to really like express both the practices uh, on a farm and the microbiology, the microbial ecology of a place in a way that, you know, is not really replicable. It's, uh, yeah. it, there's so many, um, you know, in an age of globalization, you know, cheese offers uh, the opportunity to localize economies in, in a way that can be mm -hmm. really powerful. Fascinating. Well, so obviously, you've, you know, you've got such a sort of big picture and you're using your own milk for your own cheeses then, presumably. Yes. Yeah. So we started milking uh, 15 heifers in uh, the spring of 2003. My brother Andy and I were carpenters. So we spent, you know, uh, the summer, fall and winter of 2002, uh, you know, building a cheese house and mm. preparing for those first calves. And it's kind of been a, a, a roller coaster ride uh, since, you know, we, <laughs> we, uh, we really kind of hit it out of the park early on. You know, Randolph Hodgson, the founder of Neil's Yard, came to visit us. Oh, it was the summer of 2003, and uh, we were making a little uh, hand-ladled lactic raw, milk, raw cow's milk cheese called Constant Bliss at the time. Uh -huh. And he tasted that cheese and uh, put a couple in his pocket when he left. And uh, <laughs> basically, he was like the Johnny Appleseed for us. He went and visited all kinds of customers across the U.S. that summer. Uh, and yes. he'd pull out a little piece of Constant Bliss and be like, you got to taste this cheese. And really hmm. opened uh, a lot of doors and a few windows for us along the way. Brilliant. Yes, it. Randolph's influence is enormous and uh, and hugely beneficial so yeah how wonderful and so so what a journey you have gone on so then you so you didn't know about cheese making so the Neil's Yard the time working at Neil's Yard area was before you went back and set the or was this after you had the idea it was before yeah it was right. before and so uh that was like you know 1998 and then again in 2000 2001 you know I worked uh in the cellars um, at Neil's Yard on Cheese Shift, basically um, maturing cheese. And then I, I took the opportunity to really go out, make cheese with uh, Neil's Yard dairy suppliers. Mm. Uh, had, and the most incredible experience, I got to live with families uh, across Britain and really experience the diversity of uh, language and culture. Uh, mm. I lived in uh, Devon, the Midlands, and uh, Northumberland. And, uh, wow. you know, just had an in incredible experience and yes. just learned learned a lot before uh, we even uh, started here. And obviously, you know, we've learned a lot since because um, cheese making is just an endless, you know, uh, set of, uh, you know, problems to solve. <laughs> yes. Which I think keeps it interesting, isn't it? I think if it was easy, it wouldn't be as fascinating. I mean, you yeah, know, I talk you know, to I meet people who've you know devoted their lives to making the same cheese over and over again, and yet it's not boring because the challenges are always, as far as I can understand, always there. Yeah, you're dealing with a substrate that's uh, changing almost on a daily basis, certainly on a monthly basis, and absolutely on a on a seasonal basis. Mm. Uh, now we're using microbiology to manipulate chemistry and all those, uh, there, there's so much that can go uh, wrong. And uh, when you get it right, it is, you know, you can hear 
uh, an angel squire, really. Um, <laughs> did you have a moment in these early days of cheesemaking? Did you have an, you know, was there an absolute thrill where you where something turned out beautifully and you thought, great, we've done something wonderful? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really about making adjustments to on a on a daily basis to and learning from you know what what happened yesterday, last week, last month, and in some ways, you know, cheese making is really an exercise in consciousness over time. So you mm -hmm. have to be uh, bring an awareness and uh, the ability to really like. Uh, manage details over over extended periods of time right. and um, you know in that way you become kind of like uh, a part of the cheese and the cheese becomes a part of you as a, as a cheese maker and you know we we have had the good fortune you know to get a few things right but they didn't necessarily they, they weren't necessarily right in the beginning we threw away the first you know Two or three months worth of cheese we produced, it was just terrible. Gosh. Um, so um, my advice to uh, new cheesemakers is always, you know, get yourself a couple of pigs. You, <laughs> it's that you, hard you then. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. That yeah. is interesting. And what, did you have, were there certain cheeses you wanted to make? You know, did you want to make a, a blue cheese or a, you know, or a mature cheese? You know, did you have sort of set, you know, fantasy cheeses that you wanted to set out to make? Yeah, so we thought, you know, We'd start with a uh, a blue cheese, and uh, Bailey Hazen Blue is really a flagship cheese for us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it actually it's won uh, best unpasteurized uh, cheese in the world, and it's um, currently holds the we have the trophy from uh, you know the International Cheese Awards yeah. awards in Nantwich. Um, yes. You know, it's yeah. the uh, best uh, American cheese and also the best you know blue cheese in the world. It's happened a couple of times. We're Fantastic. about to send the trophy back. It's the first time it's left Britain. So, you know, it's uh, that cheese, and honestly, my favorite uh, cheese possibly um, of all time is uh, Colston Bassett. Uh, I was just going to ask you whether, you know, I was going to ask you what it was like, because I, I love Colston Bassett Stilton. The, oh, it's just one, unbelievable yeah. cheese. <laughs> it is um, fantastic, I, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we make a blue cheese. It, it's a completely different, like, technology. I, um, it's a, you know, I, I made cheese at Tickamore Cheese. In uh, with Robin Congdon and uh -huh. uh, uh, down in uh, Totnes, yeah. yeah. And um, the original Bailey Bailey Hazen Blue recipe, you know, was based on Devon Blue, which we completely changed. We changed the right. format. We grew yeah. a natural rind on it, and it actually is like nothing like a Devon Blue, really, um, <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Uh, but it is, uh, you know, it is. Uh, it's a raw milk cheese, and so many things have to go right for that cheese to be delicious and when it mm. is well, it is, um, it's, it's right up there with one of the best things I've ever put in my mouth. Excellent. That sounds very rewarding. Obviously, what's been a journey. So, and if you're using raw milk, we, in fact, we, one of my episodes was about raw milk. And um, I talked to, um, it was Bronwyn Percival and Joe Schneider and Martin Gott all talking to me, you know, and then obviously one of the things that came through was, you know, you've got to really know your milk, you know, in order to be, use raw milk. You've got to be very confident of it. And yeah. but also obviously the richness of possibility that it offers from a cheesemaking point of view. That that also came up, you know, the the potential rewards of working. Yes, with raw milk. because there's a linear correlation between microbial diversity and complexity of flavor. That relationship mm. is linear. And so right. when you're able to manage a farming system to maximize 
microbial diversity while excluding pathogens, you end up with this uh, richness that just can't be replicated. And it is the you know these products that are really connected you know to uh, to a place. And ultimately, yeah. that's what we're interested in creating here: an economy built on cheese that reflects uh, the people and the place where we are. And, you know, and, your point and, about rural economies and, the, you know, the difficulties and the pressures on them. So have you, with this vision, which sounds very inspiring, have you been able to make a, an actual difference to the local economy then? Yeah, so we're uh, Greensboro's a, a village, a town of uh, 670 residents. We, you know, we're supporting uh, six dairy farms and five other uh, cheesemakers because we also ripen cheese for other producers and do all the mm-hmm. like marketing sales and distribution for for other other uh, cheesemakers and you know our team has grown to about 120 people at this point um, they're all scattered across the landscape and you know our business has gotten really complicated we have two uh, cheese making facilities uh, we're milking 400 goats about 230 cows we have we built in 2006, 2007, 2008, a complex of underground uh, tunnels. There's seven tunnels, about 22,000 square feet. I guess that's uh, about 2,000 square meters underground where we can mature about any type of cheese um, you could conceive of. Uh, along the way, we built a market, right, to support <laughs> oh, uh, good. You know, yeah. the landscape, uh, the production of this landscape in our community. In a, yeah. in a way that, you know, commodity uh, markets, you know, ha- have failed. Uh, to yeah. Do so. I think for a moment I thought physical market, like a farmer's market, or do you mean a market you found, you found people who are willing to want to buy what you're producing and, you, and the people you work with are producing? We're, uh, you know, we're, we're building a national uh, market for right. uh, high-end uh, cheese, for, for real cheese. Fantastic. And, uh, you know, in that, in that sense, uh, we're part of a community of uh, cheesemakers that's, that's global. And all those uh, cheesemakers that you mentioned, um, Joe Schneider, all, this, all the producers at Meals Yard Dairy, McMones uh, yes. in, in yeah. France, uh, yeah. producers of real cheeses uh, everywhere. You know, we stand uh, really together. We don't compete mm. with each other. We compete yeah. for the consumer of industrial cheese, um, yeah. and when uh, when when we uh, win a consumer, we win that consumer collectively, uh, really. Mm. And in, in that way, you know, uh, one of the things that that's evolved over the last you know uh, twenty years is uh, this camaraderie and collaboration in mm-hmm. um, you know the uh, in introducing uh, yeah consumers to uh you know these incredible cheeses in some ways it doesn't uh, matter where they're from when Such somebody a good point. yes yeah. I mean, when i set up this podcast when i was i thought what i wanted was to you know and i love cheese and i've had that sort of revelation of that you know a piece of montgomery's cheddar is so different from a piece of supermarket cheddar you know despite the name being cheddar cheddar you know but they are different things and actually one of the things i wanted to do through these programs is make people want to go and eat go to a good cheese shop you know which for me is like they you know they're such a wonderful resource you've got a proper cheesemonger and you can eat great cheese uh, yeah and it's, no, aside it's that, from, yeah, yeah. And aside from the like <laughs> education that you get from a real cheesemonger it is one of the ultimate sensory experiences walking into a real cheese shop you know the aroma 
you know, yeah. just the... And the variety uh, on offer and, you know, yeah, and the change, isn't it? It's one of those things, if, every time you go... And that's what was brilliant about Randolph at Neil's Yard Dairy, that policy of just giving out tasters because he knew in a very Randolph way he wanted you to be happy with what you bought. You know, if you don't like it, don't buy it, but try it. And this is always going to change, which is one of the things I realised that... I knew I liked Montgomery's cheddar, but then by going there to the shop, you then realise, oh, it changes. You know, it's not it's not set in stone. It's not this not a monolithic thing. It's something that's this variety. And I might, you know, one day I might prefer another, you know, I might want an Isle of Mulled cheddar instead, you know, because I might prefer that batch. It's it's a one that's what it's keeps exactly it so that. Yeah, as cheesemakers, we have a vintage every day. Yeah, wonderful. Right. Listen, Matteo, that's such a fascinating insight and yeah really really inspiring story so i know you're phenomenally busy so i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us thank you mateo oh, oh this has been such a such a treat thank you to find out more about food fm and our content go to foodfmradio.com thank you so much for listening to a slice of cheese i hope you've enjoyed it if you have enjoyed it it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you've found this podcast it will make such a difference to us So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.